Psalm for the summer. And we're in Psalm 69. So turn over to Psalm 69. Next week we go back to Matthew 24. And it starts off with the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, what will be the sign of the end of the age and of your coming? And so that's what we're going to talk about next week. What is the sign of the end of the age and his coming? This week we're in Psalm 69. And again, if you look at Psalm 69, there are 36 verses. We have 35 minutes. But unlike last week, these verses just flow so smoothly. And we'll have no problem whatsoever getting through these verses. Notice the superscription. That's the little statement over top of verse 1. It says, to the chief musician, which means this is going to be a song set to music. Here's the music that it's going to be set to. A tune called The Lilies which we have no idea what that's about, but it seems like it's some sort of pleasant song. I don't know why it's called the lily. And uh, it's also called a psalm of David, so it's attributed to King David. Now, the superscription's not inspired, but it was included, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And so much closer to when the psalm was written than we are. And I believe that uh, this has probably been passed down through tradition that this was a psalm of David, and it was to be set to the tune of lilies. Now, that means this is a song that is going to be sung uh, either in the tabernacle or the temple or later on in Jewish history with, when Jews get together for synagogue worship, and even Christians in the all the way up through the 1600s just sang psalms. You know they didn't have hymns? Fanny Crosby wasn't born yet. And the first person to change from psalms to what we call hymns was Isaac Watts. Prior to that, the only thing you had was scripture that was sung. So the church, early church, all the way up through like 15 or 1600s sang psalms. And this is one of the psalms that they would sing. We can't pinpoint the date or the circumstances. So we're just going to have to go down and see why, why, or read the flow of the psalm. And I think we'll be able to get the gist of it without any difficulty. Now, here's how I'm going to divide the psalm. This is going to be my outline, okay? So, verses 1 through 4, we're going to call this David's Sea of Troubles. David's Sea, that's S-E-A, of Troubles. And I think you'll see why we're going to call it that. Then, verses 5 through 12, David's Claim of Innocence. That's verses 5 through 12. David's Claim of Innocence. He says, I'm in a sea of trouble, but it's not my fault. Okay. Then verses 13 through 21, David pleads his case before the Lord. He's going to tell God why he should be out of this sea of trouble. And then verses 22 through 28, we have David's call for vengeance. He says, God, take care of my enemies. And this is a very strong section in the psalm. That's 22 through 28. And then 29 through 36, David's final request and the resultant praise that comes after his request. So that's going to be Psalm 69. So let's look at part one, David's sea of troubles. So let's look at what David, how David pleads to God. Look what he said. Save me, it means deliver me, get me out of this situation, oh God. And then he gives us the reason why he asked God to deliver him. What's the problem that he's facing, here it is, for or because the waters 
have come up to my neck. This is his state of being. He's up to his neck in problems. Now when he says the waters have come up to my neck, that means that's a metaphor. He's not literally in a sea drowning, but he is drowning. He's drowning in a sea of troubles. And uh, there's no way out. Just as a person would be drowning and they have to call to someone on the shore to save them, that's what David does here. He's in the midst of a life and death crisis. And if you want to say it, he's struggling in the sea of problems trying to uh, not to die. People want him dead. Okay? Uh, some of your translations may have it this way. Save me, O God, uh, for the waters uh, come into my soul. Anybody have that? There's a few people have that. Uh, which indicates that the problems have, uh, he's internalized the problems. Uh, that uh, he's depressed over the problems. He's in a state of depression and he's in a state of danger. Okay? Because of these sea of problems that he's facing. Okay, then look at verse 2. Look how he describes his situation. Now, I think it's a political situation that he's facing here. Look what he says. I sink in deep mire, in the muck, where there is no standing. The situation that he's in, a, uh, in a, a pit. He's in the, he's in the quicksand. You know? He's in a swamp where there's, he can't feel the floor below him. And so this quicksand, you've seen all those old cowboy movies when the cowboy got the quicksand, and the quicksand's starting to pull him down and he can't get out. And so, see, he can't rescue himself. So he has to have somebody throwing the rope and pull him out of there. So he is in a desperate state. state. He's going to go down and he's going to suffocate. He's going to die. I'm in a deep mire where there's no standing. What else he says in verse 2? I have come into, look at this, deep waters and the floods, watch this, overflow me. Again, it's a metaphor. He says, the waves are coming over my head. I'm not only up to my neck. Guess what? They're coming over my head. I'm going down once. I'm going down twice. He's going to go down three times, and if he goes down the third time, he's not going to come up. He's fighting for his life. I believe he's fighting for his political life. I believe he's fighting for his physical life because of these enemies. Now, how bad is it? Well, let me show you how bad it is. Look at verse 3. I am weary with my crying. Uh, he has cried out to God and prayed to God so much that he's just exhausted. Uh, uh, Jerry Hoffman has had chemotherapy this week. It's wiped him out. Uh, David is wiped out over just weeping and crying out to the Lord and nothing seems to be happening. Look what he says in verse 3. My throat is dry. When was the last time you prayed so much to God that you got hoarse? Because you see, there's no water to drink in this little picture here. And he's hoarse because he's prayed to God and he's just parched. His throat is parched. Look what he says. My eyes, at the end of verse 3, fail while I wait for my God. You ever, you've seen those pictures of people in the ocean, maybe a big ocean liner crashes, they go in the ocean, they've been treading water, they've gone on for, you know, a day, their throat is parched, they're burnt because of the sun, and guess what they want to do? They just want to close their eyes, don't they? Just close their eyes, go to sleep, and soon all be able to just give up. That's what he wants to do. 
He said, I've prayed so long, I've cried so long that I'm hoarse. I just want to close my eyes. I'm just about ready to give up. So when he's crying out to God, save me, if God doesn't save you, he's going to totally give up. Okay? Does that make sense to you? <clears throat> now, he lists the problems that he faces. Look what he says. Very interesting. In verse 4. Watch this. Those who hate me without a those who hate me without a cause, number one, here's problem number one. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs on my head. Number one, he's outnumbered by his enemies. He's outnumbered by his enemies. Now I don't know how many hairs we have on our head, but there's one David, and there are thousands of hairs on his head. He's outnumbered thousands to one. See? And uh, notice he says, without a cause. We're going to see that in a few moments. Okay, So problem number one, he's outnumbered. Okay, problem number two, look in verse four. They are mighty who would destroy me. He's not only outnumbered, he's outarmed. <clears throat> he's outarmed. See, the magnitude of the enemy is bad. But the might of the enemy is worse. There's just no way. See, he's really not drowning in... Quicksand, is it? His problems, he's in a sea of trouble, but it's not literal quicksand, it's not literal sea. His problem is with enemies who want him dead. You see that? He said, they would destroy me. Okay? His third problem is, being my enemies wrongfully. Do you see that? He is being accused unjustly. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 4, they hate me without a cause. And then in the middle of verse 4, being my enemies wrongfully. And then his last problem is, he says, though I have stolen nothing, still I must restore it. They are criticizing him for the way he's running the government. They're saying that he is taking bribes or he's siphoning money out of the state treasury or whatever it is. And he hasn't done anything, but guess what he's doing? He's paying back. Have to. He shouldn't have to, but this is what he's being accused of, and that's really not solving the problem. So that's David's sea of trouble. Okay, you still with me? Now look at the second part David's claim of innocence. Look at verse 5. We already saw, he said, without a cause and wrongfully in verse 4. Now look at verse 5. Oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Now listen carefully. Listen very carefully. When you read verse 5, it looks like he says, I'm foolish and I'm a sinner, doesn't it? That's what it looks like. In reality, he's not admitting to any guilt. In fact, just the opposite. He's claiming his innocence. He's already claimed his innocence in verse 4. And in verse 5, he's claiming his innocence. And what he's saying in essence is this. If I were a sinner, you would know it. If I were acting foolish, you would know it would be before your eyes. And that's what he's saying, and we know that because that's confirmed in the next verse and in the following verse, verses 6 and 7. His innocence is confirmed. Look what he says in verse 6. Let not those who wait for you, and this would be David's people who are waiting for God to intervene on David's behalf, O Lord, God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded, because of me, O oh God, uh, 
Don't let that happen because, now watch this, why not? Don't let people be ashamed, don't let them be confounded because I'm being charged with wrongdoing because I'm not doing anything wrong. Look what he says in verse 7, because for your sake I've borne reproach. Do you see that? It's because for God's sake that he has borne reproach and shame has covered my face. David is being dishonored not because he's sinning. If he was doing that, God would know it. He's being dishonored and he's being shamed because of his righteous stance. Notice he says in verse 7, because for your sake I have borne the reproach. See that? And uh, that is his argument. I'm not guilty. Look in verse 8. I have become a stranger to my brothers. As a result of this, there have been people who just won't have anything to do with me, even my brothers. They're starting to believe these reports. I've become an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal. Look at this. Here's why I'm in trouble. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Why is he being persecuted? Why? Because in verse 7, for your sake. And then in verse 9, because of zeal for your house. Now, what is said of David here can also be said of Jesus. In fact, when the early church read this psalm, they read it uh, what we call Christologically. They read Jesus into the psalm. Why was Jesus persecuted? Why did Jesus have enemies? Because he sinned? No. Why did his brothers reject him? Every one of his brothers and sisters rejected him. Why did that happen? Why did the apostles not stand with him when he was accused by the Jewish leaders and put on the cross by Rome? Why did he say, my God, my God, why have you even forsaken me? Why did he say, I've been crying out to you so long, God, that I'm hoarse. Give me something to drink. Remember when he says that? I thirst. Remember when he said that from the cross? See, these are all the same things David says. Why was Jesus arrested? Remember? It was because of the zeal for God's house. During Passion Week, remember he goes in and what does he do? He goes into the temple, God's house, and he overturns the temple because you have turned my father's house, which should be a house of prayer, into a house of, for thieves. His zeal for his father's house is what gets him killed. And David is making the same claim. He says, there's nothing I've done. But as a result of all these accusations, people are ashamed of me. Even my followers. See? So that, does that make sense to you? That's the, the gist of what David said. So David is suffering for his zeal, not for his sin. Okay? Now look at verse 10. I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. <coughs> And that became my reproach. Didn't matter what I did. I went on a fast. Jesus often did that. Uh, instead of saying, oh, that's admirable. No. They reproached him for that. Didn't, he couldn't win for losing. David or Jesus. So he's saying, you know, I was 
seeking your faith. They even they said, what's he doing? What's he doing taking a three-day holiday like that? They said, well, I was actually fasting. I was seeking God's face for the nation. Ah, I shouldn't be doing awful things. No, he should be in his office, you know, every day. See how you can turn anything nice even into something ugly? And this is what's happening here. Look at verse 11. I also made sackcloth for my garment. And I became a byword to them. Look at that, a byword. That means I became a laughing stock. That means I was the brunt of jokes. They said, hey, by the way, did you hear what happened to David today? <laughs> the old fool. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate, that would be the judges, those who are upper class, speak against me. And I'm a song for the drunkards. The upper class are against him. The lower class is against him, David said. In fact, when the drunks go into the bar room, they sing songs about me. I'm the subject of their songs. Uh, Americans are good at doing that. We've made songs about people who were sort of disgraced. And a lot of folk music is about that. I mean, I, when I was your age, you know, growing up, I remember that uh, there was a song called Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Here was a guy who had committed murder. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. You know that, don't you? Hang down your head and cry. Or how about this? Remember Jesse James when he got shot? Jesse was a lad who killed a many man. He robbed the Danville train. But that dirty little coward that shot Mr. Howard laid poor Jesse in the grave. Who are they talking about? They're talking about this guy who shoots Jesse James in the back because, and he's a disgrace that you would do that. They make songs about them. Job says, I've done nothing wrong. I'm suffering all this, and guess what they're doing all around me? He said, I've become a byword. They make songs about me. That's what David's experiencing. I bet you they made songs about Jesus too. So that's what's happening. He's being criticized in all sectors of society. Okay? So he pleads his innocence. Now, he pleads his case. Look at verse 13. But as for me, while they're singing songs about me and making me a byword, but as for me, my prayer is to you. See, this is a righteous man. O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. That's the muck that he's stuck in. And let me not sink. <laughs> Don't let me die. Let me be delivered from those who hate me. See, that's the muck. His enemies are the ones who are holding him down. And out of the deep waters deliver me. Let not, not the flood waters overflow me. That's how the psalms start. Now he's asking God not to allow these things to happen. Nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit, that means the grave, shut its mouth on me. In other words, uh, don't let me die. Now, in the New King James Version, which I'm using, verse 13 uses the word here and repeats it three times. I'm just going to read that to you. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable year, O God, in the multitude of your mercy. And here's what the New King James says. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. And that's a literal translation. And the word here is going to be mentioned there. It's going to be mentioned in verse 16. Hear me, O Lord, in your loving kindness. 
And then, again, it's going to be found at the end of verse 17, hear me speedily. Three times the word here is mentioned in the, in the literal text. Some of your translations don't have it. But he is making, he's pleading his case, and he's asking God to hear me. Some of your translations say, answer me. And the reason it says, answer me instead of hear, is because when you really hear somebody, you respond. Don't touch that plug, you say to the little child. And it moves, it responds, it, it's obedient because it's heard you. It means hearing with, you know, action. So, the, he's pleading his case right here. So here you have it, hear number one. Okay? And then look at verse 16. Here's hear number two. Hear me, O Lord, why? On what basis should God hear? For your loving kindness is good. That's a covenant word. Compassion, mercy, loving kindness. God promised when he made a covenant with Israel that if they were righteous, he would hear and come to their rescue. David is asking God to honor his covenant. Hear me because you need to honor your covenant. That's why he said up in 13, hear me in the truth of your salvation. You made a statement. I hope it's true that when we're in trouble, you will deliver us. You will save us. That's what salvation means here. So, the second here is, hear me in the loving kindness. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Again, a covenant word. Show mercy on me based on the covenant that you made with Abraham and with Moses. And then he goes on to say, do not hide your face from your servant. Don't forsake me. Look, why not? Because I'm in trouble. <laughs> I need help. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me in a lurch. See? Draw near to my soul. That simply means draw near to me. Redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. So here he asks God to step up, come near, draw near. Step up, come to my rescue. David can't do anything for himself. He can't go to God. God, except through prayer. So God has to come and rescue him. Now here number three. At the end of verse 17. Hear me speedily. Uh, he's been praying for a long time. And uh, there's no answer. Now it's he's going down for the third time. And so now he says, hey, you need to hurry this thing up a little bit. <coughs> Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me from my enemies. So what we have here is this threefold prayer. And then he says, you know my reproach. Nothing's hidden from you. You know my shame. You know my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Nothing's done in secret. Nothing gets by your glance. Reproach has broken my heart. This is, he's totally depressed. I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there wasn't anybody out there. This is why I'm saying that when we have people that are hurting, those of us who are doing pretty well, we need to show pity. We need to help people. Because if we don't help them, who will? Nobody will. So he says, reproach has broken my heart. Verse 20, I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. Watch this. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Does that sound like Jesus on the cross? 
See why if the church could read the psalm like this and interpret it in light of Christ, Jesus being the son of David, the second David, Israel's new king. He said, you know something? I was hungry. They you know what they gave me? Gave me, a, gave me bile. I was hungry and they gave me bile. He said, ah, let me give you some dregs from your liver. Do you like liver? I hate liver. Well, okay, well, we'll give you the bile that comes out of the liver, that secretes from the liver. How would you like that for your lunch? Hey, I'm thirsty. My throat's parched. Remember he said I'm hoarse? My throat's dry. He's going down in the water. I'm thirsty. What did they give Jesus? How would you like that for a drink? To quench your thirst. And they gave him vinegar. Oh, they, they gave him more of an anesthesia than they gave him, you know, Gatorade or whatever it is. Okay, so we have him pleading his case. Now, this next section, he calls upon God to take vengeance upon his enemies. Okay? And this begins what's called an imprecatory prayer. Now, we saw one of those before. Remember that? That's where he asked God to do some bad things to people. And in the New King James... These bad things start off with the word let. You see let in verse 22, 23, middle 24, 25, twice, 28, 29. You see all those lets? These are like demands that he makes of God. And look what he asks God to do. Demand number one, verse 22. He's talking about his enemies. Let their table become a snare before them. And their well-being a trap. Now, what's he mean? Let their table become a snare, and their well-being a trap. He may mean that uh, let them who are feeding sumptuously, not getting bile like I am, uh, those who are comfortable and they're experiencing well-being, uh, let them become lax because everything's going too smoothly could mean something like that. Or it could be just talking about when they get around the table and they should be eating. And they think, I mean, we got everything in, under control. And then, you know, who knows, day, a week, whatever, David's finished. They start speaking loosely. <coughs> and things start leaking out. <laughs> Did you ever hear WikiLeaks? Things start leaking out, and their plans, how they're going to take over, and their plans to, let's say, trap David, start leaking out, and it ends up being their own doom. Their table becomes their doom, because they should keep their mouth shut and just eat around that table instead of talking too much. Could be something like that. But anyway, the bottom line is, trap them. Snare them in their own words and in their own comfort. That's what 22 is about. Okay, look at the next demand. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. Uh, let them not really see the situation for what it is. They're really the ones who are ready to step into the trap. Don't let them see that trap. Let them get blindsided. Make their loins shake continually. Uh, give them a nervous stomach. Uh, you know, cause their knees to shake. Uh, you know, get them, make them unsettled. So he's asking God to do that. Pour out, verse 24, your indignation upon them. That's the one thing I would definitely not want God to do. And let your wrathful anger take hold of them. That means, God, 
Now, we know what anger is, but when you have to use an adjective and call it wrathful anger, that must be anger that's pretty bad. <laughs> that means, Lord, you see those enemies? Can you do a little harder than that? No, I mean harder, God. Can you be wrathful? Man, God, that's the way I want. That's what I want you to do to those people. Just crush them. See? So why did I do this jumping? I have to be nuts to do something like this. Now look, look at verse 25. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Drive them from their homes. Now, Wellington and Dexter are out of their house. But it's not because of the punishment of God. But it's not fun being out of your house. Here, he has God to drive them out of the house. Let no one live in their tents. Drive their whole family and destroy the house. Burn it to the ground if you want to use this kind of stuff. Why? Why does he want God to do it? For they persecute the ones you've struck. And when we say God struck them, it means God has put his people in a difficult situation. And they talk of the grief of those that you've wounded. Now this is very interesting because here are people that are hurting, and David attributes that to God. He doesn't say, well, because, you know, God could have uh, could heal people sometimes, and he doesn't do it, and they're hurting. And uh, David recognizes that, so he doesn't try to get God out of that situation. But he says, you know, Lord, instead of showing compassion to these people, <laughs> instead of reaching out and helping these people, they strike the people. And that's why they need to be punished, because they're evil. When you kick somebody when they're down, that's just not being mean. That's evil. And he says, Lord, now I want you just to stomp them out of existence, basically. Because they haven't shown any compassion on people who are hurt and wounded. Look at verse 27. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Now they're sinning, Lord. Make them sin some more. Double sin, because then you get double punishment. Let them not come into your righteousness. How would you like to have somebody pray for you that you don't get saved? I want to pray for somebody that they don't come into. Lord, I know this guy. Don't allow him to be righteous. Come into your righteousness. Don't ever forgive him of any sin. Hold him responsible and guilty for everything he's ever done. See, that's what an imprecatory prayer is. Have you ever prayed one of those? I'm not talking about you for your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law. Or your, you know, I'm just talking about your enemies, okay? Not your perceived enemies. Now look at verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now what in the world is this talking about? This has nothing to do with eternal security and losing your salvation and all this. This is a reference to a census or a population book. We know that when Israel came out of Egypt, every person who escaped from Egypt, their name was written in a book. The book of the living. And then when you died, you're no longer living, and your name was taken out of the book of the living. Now here's what he's saying for God to do. Take their name out of the book of the living. Which is another way of saying to God, kill them! He wants his enemies dead. So that's what he prays for. Take them out of the book of living that they may not be written with the righteous, which in this case would be the people of God. So that's his 
plea for vengeance. Now we come to this next section, David's request and the resultant praise. So look what he says is that we sum up. Look at verse 29. But I am poor. Look at that. He's going to contrast himself with the unrighteous people. I am poor and sorrowful. See, he's one of the people they should have been showing compassion to, but they have. So now look what he asks for himself. Let your salvation, meaning your deliverance, O God, set me up on high. They've been knocking me down. I'm sinking down. Look. I'm sinking down, right? Lift me up on high. So he wants God to get him out of that muck. That's the prayer for himself. That's another let there. Then he says, I will, here's the result. I will praise the name of God with a song. In fact, this psalm is a song. I will magnify him, God, with thanksgiving. He's going to praise God. Jonah went down. God lifted Jonah out of the waters of death, puts him on solid ground. That's what David wants God to do for him. And he says, when you do that, I will praise you and I will give you thanksgiving. What did Jonah do when God lifted him up on solid ground and he went and preached Nineveh? You know how the book ends? He complains to God. I just say those people. It's very interesting. But David says, uh, I'm going to praise you. And then he says this in verse 31. This also shall please the Lord better than ox or bull. His praise and his thanksgiving pleases God better than ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. And what he's basically saying is, God desires praise rather than sacrifice of animals. That's really what he wants. Our sacrifice should be a sacrifice of praise, not a sacrifice of animals with horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. That means when God raises him up, guess what? Humble people are going to see it, and they're going to be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. Others will die, but the humble people who seek God, they will live. Why? Because God hears the poor, and he does not despise the prisoner. God is on the side of people who are down and out, because they have nowhere else to turn. If someone doesn't show them compassion, God will come in, and he will show them compassion. He hears the poor. David says, I am poor, up in verse 29. So that means God hears David. And he does not despise his prisoners. Notice, whose prisoners? God's prisoners. God has prisoners. Who are prisoners? What do you mean God has prisoners? These are people who are persecuted for righteousness sake and may end up in prison. They're God's prisoners. Remember Paul. Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Remember when he writes that? Why didn't he say, Paul, a prisoner of the Roman Empire? They don't want to throw him in jail because he sees himself being in prison because of Jesus Christ. And Christ shows compassion to those who were in prison. Remember that? I was in prison and you what? Visited me not. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Oh, but we say Jesus, 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 Jesus. You visited me not. All you do is talk. No action. But to the others... You did visit me. And he said, enter in. So why? 
He shows compassion. He hears the prisoner. He doesn't despise him. So now David calls for all the world to praise God. Let heaven and earth praise Him. The seas and everything that moves in them. In other words, from the highest angels in heaven to the lowest, those things under the sea, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. It's a call to worship. Now why should everybody worship God? For, because, God will deliver, God will save Zion. He will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. So God is going to deliver David, He's going to deliver Israel, He's going to deliver the New Jerusalem, He's going to talk about ultimate deliverance. And then He says, Also the descendants of His servants shall inherit that city. Not only is this for David, it's for David's descendants. See, in the covenant, the descendants inherit the city, inherit the earth, whatever. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. God is going to keep his covenant with Abraham and David, and indeed those people who trust in God, keep his covenant, will be those who are delivered from death and eventually dwell in the city of God. New Testament writers would have interpreted this prophetically and they would have seen that as us inheriting the kingdom of God and the meek inheriting the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter what your situation is. If you're like David and you totally depend upon the Lord, he will hear in the acceptable time in his time, and in the right circumstances, he will hear and he delivers. But the others, what they're going to face is judgment. So, David said, I'm sinking. I'm sinking in the quicksand. And my enemies want to pull me down and destroy me. And it's as if David is saying, from sinking sand, he lifted me. With tender hand he lifted me. From shade of darkness to plain of light. Oh, praise his name. He lifted me. That's what the whole Bible is about. All we have to do is trust God. But we always want to trust our own devices. Oh, Lord, help us to take these truths and apply them to our lives. Help us to be people of faith. Help us to realize that you established a covenant long ago with Abraham and David, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're those who inherit the promises of this covenant. Oh Lord, help us to take them to heart. Help us to follow the examples that are set before us with Jesus and even Jesus, with David and even Jesus himself. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Be obedient and faithful servants in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.